Welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. So first off, I need to apologize for not getting the episode out on Sunday as I normally do. We recorded on Sunday, and sometimes it's hard when I record to get it uh, all edited and posted uh, the day of. As I'm sure many of you were on the edge of your seat waiting for the next episode to drop, you're very upset with me. You know, as you may know from listening, um, you know, depression and I have a long-term relationship. Uh, depression is bay. Uh, but we have a somewhat open relationship because um, anxiety needs to come over for a booty call every once in a while. And last couple weekends, I've been getting some bouts with anxiety. You know, I guess part of it is just, it's just always going to be there a little bit. It's just part of my brain. You know, but I'm sure there's some external triggers for it, too. I try not to think too, too much about, you know, what what that might be. I try not to, you know, figure it out, right? Because you can get your mind racing and go down a rabbit hole that way, too. I know there's a couple things at work um, that might be contributing. And I think, too, um, this is going to sound weird, but, uh, you know, with summer approaching and I'm going to have all that time off, sometimes that can be a little disconcerting, uh, a little scary, because uh, I'm going to be knocked off my routine that I'm in for, for 10 months, and I'm going to have all this free time, but also maybe the specter of, you know, six weeks of recovering from a second surgery later on this summer, you know, is haunting me as well, who knows, but yeah, on the weekends, it's been, it's been odd. This episode, I talked to a friend, Jacob. He's one of the the younger people that I've had on the show so far. But I think he's got an interesting story to tell. We kind of find ourselves talking about politics and uh, I guess then decide not to, considering how depressing things are these days. And we also discuss his approval of pineapple on pizza. And we end with a little banjo. Uh, the first... Musical performance, if you will, uh, on the podcast thus far. Stay tuned after the interview, not just for one of my award-winning outros, but also for a hidden bonus track. Okay, here's my conversation with Jacob. Something sinister to it. Pendulum swinging slower, degenerate moving through the city with criminal stealth. Welcome to enemy turf, harder than immigrants work. Golf is distant in my shirt. Get up off the pavement, brush the dirt up off my psyche. Psyche, psyche. Okay, folks, we're back in BTTHHQ for the third episode in a row. Tiny apartment with some dogs. If you hear. Some nails clicking on the floor, and some tags jingling, and some panting. Uh, that's at least one of them. But we're uh, we're gonna make the best of it. Uh, today's human is Jacob. Jacob, thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. So usually uh, I start with uh, asking folks about their intro music. So tell me about um, uh, was this Earl Sweatshirt, and what was the name of the song again? Chum. Yes. Uh, okay. I, yeah, I don't know how I why i started listening to earl sweatshirt but um i i just his some of his music's really interesting i think his delivery it's pretty straightforward usually mm-hmm. um and then that song in particular is like just i think it gives a lot to the like 
the storytelling that he does with it, but then also the anxiety and like depression that people deal with um, at the same time. So I find it really compelling in that way. Um, a lot of his music's not like happy at all, mm. from what I can tell. Um, but I think in terms of like the storytelling is really good, and I like his delivery a lot. And when I was in a really like a funk, uh, just listen to that album so much. Um, so yeah, so I thought it'd be kind of, and especially if like we're gonna talk about uh, folk music and banjos, I figured let's go with something completely different mm. uh, to kind of mix it up a little bit rather than just like mm. here's some Pete Seeger to talk about banjos. It's <laughs> not yeah. yeah, my uh, a few of my students mentioned him a couple of years ago. That's how I had heard of him. Otherwise, I I never would have heard. Of him. I'm pretty shitty with. Any hip hop that's made after like 2012, I'm just I just don't know any of it. Yeah, I mean I think that's a lot of um, a lot of people, especially if they find out I like play banjo and they like folk music, they're like shocked that I like hip hop. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think in terms of like what hip hop does is, is so important in terms of like the expansion of the genre. It's constantly changing, so you can't just listen to it like up until 2012. You gotta like it's constantly re uh, evolving. And changing, you know, what's what's normal and what's standard, uh, whereas I think other music could learn a lot from that. Mm. And even the musicians themselves are expected to constantly be like uh, changing and developing. Whereas like a punk band, uh, if they change at all, they're seen as selling out. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they, and then also at the same time, if they're in their forties, still playing and making music as if they were eighteen, I find that really weird. Mm. Um, like Weezer will still be acting as if they're like the uncool kids uh, being beat up by jocks uh, at their high school in California when it's like you guys are millionaires who you know have been making money off the same songs for for decades Uh, hip-hop's not expected to do that at least not not in the same rate and it it, you know it's like you're expected to keep up with the times Uh, folk music a lot of times I don't think does Mm. Uh, I listen a lot of folk and punk and it's just like it they kind of just stay the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all expected to still be singing songs about uh, being hobos and hopping on uh, uh, trains to go to the next town. It's like, why? No one's living that life. It's not the mm-hmm. 30s anymore or, or, or the 20s. So um, that's kind of what I appreciate about it in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I, I was reading uh, one of the, I have these two books about Dylan, and they both talk about, you know, the broader folk scene, you know, as they narrow down on his slice of the story. And I always found interesting the sort of debate in in that scene not just like the you know what's what's real and what's commercial and all that sort of thing but the idea that like folk is like frozen in time yeah you know and it's like is folk music a sound and a style or is it simply the music that regular folks are making at any given time you know and there was two sort of camps in that debate and it sounds like you know hip-hop's on the innovative side of of that yeah i mean i think it could be both though mm-hmm. um and i would hope that it it could because otherwise like i like the sound of you know an, a good old acoustic guitar and a banjo and a fiddle um but like i said maybe we just don't have to sing about the great depression anymore because mm-hmm. we don't i don't i didn't go through that you mm-hmm. know uh what if instead we we're writing like songs about uh instead of like simply writing about labor struggle and that's about it. Like what if it was like, I don't know, the Ferguson or, or the Baltimore riots or a rebellion, the Baltimore rebellion is like as a major folk moment. And could we do that with the same acoustic instruments and still have a little bit of authenticity there? Um, and, and kind of this kind of walking it back and forth rather than seeing it as like, um, you know, 
talking about the homestead strike or something like mm. that, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Is like, could we blend it? And mm. I think there's some musicians that do. Uh, so Justin Earl writes songs. Uh, there's one that's really great about working for the M- MTA uh, that, as far as I'm concerned, it is a modern folk song in the way that it sounds like the guy's describing going down into a coal mine. But instead, he's driving a train between like Pelham Bay and uh, you know somewhere else in Brooklyn. And it, it still has the same feel to it, but this is a modern labor existence. You mm. know, this is like work people do now. Um, you know, and it's not just like a, a protest song in itself. It's like this is about just labor and what we do as as humans, right? Mm. Um, and I kind of I appreciate stuff like that. And there's other musicians who I think like are trying to expand the genre um, and kind of take the old songs and rewrite them in modern ways or um, add new effects to it that you know maybe and and more like a, a noise kind of building like an ambiance to it uh, versus like a straight G C and D you know, quick song uh, with all the expected fills of a, of a, a fiddle or something like that. You mm-hmm. know? So when were you first uh, drawn to political music, to folk music? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, the first time I really started getting into to folk music is I was driving a, a parts truck when I was, like, 18. I would drive, I would, you know, I worked at a car dealership, and I would drive to other dealers and drop off parts for them. Um, and I remember listening to uh, the Carolina Chocolate Drops had an album come out, and it was probably the first time I heard like traditional old time music in a in a in a real like a it wasn't just like a one off thing. Um, and their album, uh, even what they were trying to do as an all black uh, old time group, which is a super rare thing of itself. Yeah, they had a hip hop song that they redid. <laughs> um, oh, I think another one you're talking about. Yeah, I think Hit 'Em Up Style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And over top of it, they have a jug, but the the guy who's playing the jug is beatboxing over over the jug, um, and just kind of again like taking that same idea and kind of expanding it. It's like, what can we do with a song that the lyrics are very much in line with old time in their own way of like this woman getting revenge for a man cheating on her by um, by uh, running up his credit card mm-hmm. um, and then throwing everything away, just kind of like uh, discarding it entirely. So I think that was like the first time I heard like claw hammer banjo. And I remember going out and buying the album immediately and was like, oh, this is, you know, this is great. And it didn't feel like that. And then when I got involved in like political stuff, you, you can't, uh, you can't do like labor activism uh, without someone playing, you know, which side are you on or solidarity forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started listening to Pete Seeger and things mm-hmm. like that. And then later you get into like the politics of Pete Seeger and it's a whole nother world. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah. so, um, so, and this was in Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Ohio. Um, and uh, my family is, like, very proud of being, like, migrating out of, like, Kentucky and Virginia and West Virginia up into southern Ohio, uh, especially on my dad's side. So they, they kind of traveled up to work in a, a, a sawmill um, and then ended up, like, in the rural parts outside of Columbus. Um, and they're very proud of, like, their Appalachian uh, background, um, very working class family. So that's kind of like ingrained in me this idea of like going back to the hills constantly, and so is I think when eventually when I like as I started to get older and I moved out here, for me I had this initial reaction of of moving to New Jersey where was like I'm gonna be the most Appalachian person ever and like very proud of that it was like this it looking back on it, it was like clearly just a a reaction and that's it right so i, I went out and I, I bought a banjo immediately and started and started playing the banjo because i already kind of liked the instrument anyway and that was and that was kind of my initial kind of 
introduction to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know a lot of old time music, um, but I would listen to a couple of bands and then try you know, and something about the way the fifth string pops on a banjo just kind of sparked an inspiration mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. So, and uh, parents were, were educators, right? My dad's a teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he was a first generation college student. Um, but he, like, as he got out of the army, uh, went to the community college, you know, to get his degree. Um, and my mom's always kind of worked at different places, owned businesses at some points, like, uh, like a women's gym and things like that. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of music was on when you were, when you were growing up, what kind of music were you listening, were they listening to around the house? Anything like folk or no? No, I would say my parents didn't listen to music okay. at all growing up. So like, uh, every, that, no, I think like for a long time, like I know a lot of people, they, they listen to the music their parents liked and that's their introduction. So people love the Beatles. I would argue for a lot of that reason. I don't remember a lot of music being on ever and yeah. not in like a weird Amish kind of way, mm-hmm. uh, but rather it's just like not a staple. So I remember hearing like, I remember my dad turning up, uh, I can feel it in the air tonight when you're like, this is a good song. You know, and I can remember like the animals when uh, House of the Rising Sun would come on, they'd turn it up. Mm. But that's about it. Yeah. And my mom had a bread CD. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with bread. Yeah, yeah a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, about as interesting as the title implies. <laughs> um, and then like a Three Dog Night. You know, it was like not a whole lot. Um, so I feel like, uh, at least I always felt like I was wandering in the desert for, for music um growing up and until like a, a guy gave me his punk uh cd case um was really when i started like having a, started to get like a a sense of a genre and, and the type of music i actually liked yeah I, so yeah. so folk music was kind of similar it was like i you know you get these like little bits here and there um but one of the things i do like doing is when i when i do find somebody new it's about like figure out okay who inspired them and kind of like working your way backwards um, so, you know, I think most middle schoolers go through a Nirvana phase, even today. Hmm. Um, then you find out like Sonic Youth is a thing and Sonic yeah, yeah. Youth is really good. And you find about the Pixies that way. And then you, you know, then you find about Bowie and it just kind of like goes back from there. And folk music's no different. Um, except I think a lot of people probably start with Pete and then kind of work their way around it. Right. Mm. Um, at least that was my experience with it. Mm. Yeah. Um, I had uh, similar, I guess, like when I was a, a kid. Um, my dad wasn't, didn't really listen to much of anything, but, uh, I had this weird combination with my mom of, uh, Sinatra and eighties country. So I don't know what drew her to girl from the Bronx to country music, but I just, it was on all like all the time. So I know, you know, the words to some Sinatra tunes actually a lot because I really got into that. Um, and like Conway Twitty songs. <laughs> I mean, the, the Sinatra makes sense being in Jersey like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that seems pretty normal to me. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I like I think for with country music, like my my parents kind of hated it yeah. as a result of like growing up in like rural Ohio. Um, so I don't really know a lot of that yeah. stuff at all. And then now I definitely have an aversion to it. Um, and some honky tonk stuff will come on. I was like, it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. But overall, it's just like never been a. Mm. never been a thing so when did you about what age did you discover punk middle school just like everybody else um there was a guy named mohawk mark um he had a mohawk really yeah yep um and he gave me a cd that had a lot of like ska punk um because there was a local ska band that i liked Uh, and i remember getting like um choking victim and um suicide machines some real big fish and things like that in there 
um, and were kind of like the initial like started to form my own you know sense of a well for my own out of one guy giving me a, a pack of cds you know mm. uh, being like this is, this is great this is the greatest music ever and like minor threat and things like that for the first time mm. which yeah and i mean eventually you, know, you kind of grow out of that where a lot of people do anyways mm. um we now it's uh, now it becomes like part of like nostalgia to listen to those type of things you know mm. uh, so i'll defend ska but not today maybe on the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe on the music podcast right? yeah yeah so uh college is in ohio right yeah, I went to school in Ohio University, which is like a small uh, liberal school in southern Ohio. It's kind of the northernmost Appalachian University, so a lot of like liberal Democrats will come speak at OU. Like when Johnson goes to give the um, War on Poverty speech and launch it, uh, he comes to Athens because it's kind of like the safe haven for, for liberals. They can go just far enough into Appalachia and mm-hmm. claim that they're there mm-hmm. without um, without pissing anyone off you know so so then politically let, let's talk about that like, what's the area like and what and what are you like around that time and is there sort of this disconnect is i mean because when we see the electoral maps of ohio we see clusters of blue you know around the cities and then like you know a little purple and then like boom red yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah okay you know, down especially down in the in the southern the southern end so what's it like sort of getting into the way you were seeing the world in that sort of atmosphere yeah, yeah, it's a cool way to take it. Um, so my family itself, like, some of my earlier memories are what I would consider, like, good old Appalachian, like, uh, hatred for both Democrats and Republicans. And particularly, I remember, like, my, my great uncle, my uncle Tob, you know, one day he was, like, complaining about Kennedy and Reagan in the same breath, um, to which, you know, my, like, I was probably 17 at the time, I was like, like, well, Uncle Tab, like, well, who do you like? And he goes, well, neither. You know, he hated <laughs> Kennedy because uh, he sent him to Vietnam, and he hated Reagan because he broke up the unions. And uh, um, he goes, I'm, I'm for the working man. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh shit, this is like hillbilly anarchist here, you know. <laughs> um, and that was kind of like kind of set a lot of like how I kind of started shape uh, viewing things. A lot of my family's like they just see them all as crooks. And they're not wrong. But that, uh, what happens, I think, is, like, that's kind of where the analysis ends. But it, early on, it was, like... And then also, I was coming up at the time of, like, the Iraq invasion. And not really understanding what that meant. But I knew my parents uh, were vehemently against it, even though they, prior to that, were almost, like, lifetime Republicans. Hmm. Um, but they saw that as, like, an unjust war. And they didn't... Um, you know, they, they started to kind of change the way they see it. Um, and after that, they kind of... They kept moving moving leftward. Mm-hmm. Um and, and growing up in these kind of areas where you have progressive ideas but not understanding really what they mean, um, being surrounded by kind of conservatives was pretty normal. But I think with the, even now we're seeing it in like West Virginia, it's like people have these backwards ideas about race and gender, but at the same time, their lives and their, their material conditions are deteriorating, you know? You have people who don't want uh, strip mining to poison their water, but they also need jobs. Then if coal was the main industry, it's a, it's a real contradiction there and how, and how people actually grapple with it. And I think part of the problem is that for decades, Democrats in, in southern areas would, uh, or in Appalachian areas would play up, you know, coal and, and kind of use that as a reason to get reelected, um, but offer nothing in terms of social programs for people. So that's why you're able to get a, a governor in West Virginia switch from being a Democrat you know, to a Republican with Trump 
just because they're talking about coal, for, you know, and, and, and start to inflame those reactionary ideas at the same time. So that, that's kind of like, that also kind of sums up being a college in Athens because mm-hmm. it is a liberal bubble yeah. with the college town itself mm-hmm. uh, surrounded by, you know, at this point, Trump supporters, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Democrats have done nothing for, for rural people uh, in general, you know, for, for decades, and they try to act like they're somehow a savior at the same time. They'll give lip service to it, but, um, you know, they're not exactly fighting the uh, pharmaceutical companies or the, or the oil company or gas or anything like that. Um, and, and it kind of creates this weird contradiction, but um, I think it's, it's truly just like a lack of, like, political, well, part of it. There's <laughs> a, a lack of, like, political programming instead. It just doesn't talk to anybody's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at all so so what got you into like i guess you know socialist ideas that did meet or did you know speak to people's needs yeah i mean i was pretty apolitical for a long time you know was my like I, I had a you know a pretty basic first generation like middle class existence where like nothing was too pressing on any any side um and then um in 2011 um our Republican governor tried to break up uh, or end collective bargaining for public sector employees. Mm-hmm. And my dad is a public school teacher. Mm-hmm. And that was understood as like the reason I was able to do anything at all was because he had a union and a comfortable job. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember I was sitting in class and I was, I was studying to be a teacher. And he goes, he's like, well, if you're going to be a teacher, you got to get up to Columbus. Um, this is at the same time that's happening in um, Wisconsin, Wisconsin yeah. and then later Michigan and, and you know, mm-hmm. throughout the country. And, uh, so I went up and I, I attended my first rally and it was like, once you start getting involved in like labor stuff, cause it was, un- again, it was understanding that was like, this is actually how my family has been able to acquire anything at all. And, uh, it, it, it's, I think through labor, you start to understand other issues as well, or at least that's what did it for me. Um, you really just can't disconnect, uh, racism and sexism, uh, from, you can no longer say those are like separate things, right? You start to look at the totality of it. Um, and how capitalism plays into that um, was kind of eye-opening. And it was like, okay, well, you can't just fight against one thing. You can't just be like, I'm really pro-labor, but, uh, you know, racism is a little, little too complicated for me. It's like, no, racism is an issue that uh, affects people, you know, uh, broadly. Um, and you have to fight all those things all at once. And it was kind of like, okay, so what's, what's the dominant ideology that would help me kind of understand that a little bit more and that's how you kind of and for me anyways like lead towards like understanding socialism right Mm -hmm. yeah around what age is that for you um i was probably 20 i'd say Mm -hmm. it was kind of late uh i think a lot you know at least everyone else i know they get they get involved that stuff much earlier uh but at the time you think about it it it's like right before occupy pops off Mm -hmm. um there isn't really a yeah, at all. There's no anti-war movement, so I don't remember any of the anti-war stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Now, when people talk to me about it, they're like, "Oh, there was hundreds of thousands of us it in the was, streets." Yeah. I'm like, "There was not hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in Lancaster, Ohio." Sure, like, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was like, I missed all of that right. uh, entirely. Yeah, yeah, I remember being part of some of those big ones, you know, in like D.C. and New York, and that sort of thing. And it just went dormant once Obama got elected. It's, it's like, it's like people pretended like there was no war anymore because we had a Democrat. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing that now, though, because I, I keep thinking about it. It's like the, it, it's really hard not to turn on the news and feel like everything's just going to hell in a handbasket, and yet there isn't a mass movement out in the streets against Trump at the same time, right? And and I and I I think this is the first, 
presidential election where I'm like, everything's clearly bad, and I'm seeing that how immobilizing uh, elections can be and how, like, if Democrats don't lead anything on it, which they never do, um, if they don't set a lead and there's no, like, mass movement to set a lead, we just kind of, like, take it for what it is, right? Like, we have children in cages, we have climate change, uh, police are still murdering people uh, left and right without, or particularly black people, without any repercussion. But, like, the movement seemed to have, like, really pulled back. Um, and that, that's not a mistake of the of the movements themselves or if they're at fault, but it's, like... Um, there just isn't like an organization actually leading any kind of charge mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's just really hard. When was the last time you remember going to a mass protest? You know, uh, the, the, oh, shortly after the election of 2016. Yeah. And, you know, none since then, you know. No, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> there was one time we were at the Elizabeth Detention Center, and uh, it was right after Trump was elected, and... We were marching around, and we actually had enough people there to shut down the entranceway entirely. And you know, the movement wasn't there at that point. Like the 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 agitation level wasn't high enough for people to even want to do that. And I get that. But uh, I remember Cory Booker showed up, and literally every like the the picket we had of a couple hundred people just stop and turn and go listen to Cory Booker. And it was it was like watching it in real time where a Democrat shows up and stops a movement. <laughs> and I was like I was like, Oh, this is this is what people have been talking about. You know, it's like I'm actually seeing it literally happen in front of me. Oh, man. And, and the whole the whole thing is like we it went back to just kind of we were only on the sidewalks and not, you know, thanking the cops for being there and stuff like that. And I was like, it's like, oh, this is this is actually what people were talking about when they you know, talk about the Democratic Party being the grave of social mm-hmm. movements. Yeah. It's like there it was, you know. And even now, it just—it really just feels like um, things have only gotten worse, and there just hasn't been like this upsurge that we had even you know two years ago, and then even during the Obama years, which was really exciting to see Occupy, Black Lives Matter, uh, reemergence of like an environmental movement for a bit. Let's just not talk about depressing things. Okay, time, yeah, right? no, I, yeah. This is like the politics can be depressing. We're in a we're in a shitty age for sure. I was just kind of. Uh, curious as to you know your your evolution in in that regard because i I can remember sort of my my own you know and uh i was just you know curious as to as to how you got there you know but uh yeah it's just i mean it's just like i said it's just really hard to look at things right now and be like oh there's a future coming i was was actually texting a friend about it who was never political growing up and she was saying that uh she feels like uh generation z uh just like think of climate change as a joke and I, I said to her i was like well no i don't think they find it to be a joke i think they're very serious about it but they see no hope or yeah. future and yeah. possibility if we like literally did everything we could right now today to like break up all of the oil industry we switch entirely to renewable resources um it still wouldn't be enough yeah, yeah. and it that's a terrifying thing to think yeah. about and so it's like what else can you do at that point other than like live under dread, which I think everyone silently is, or uh, or laugh about it and make a, a meme that is like yeah. um, as existential <laughs> as possible, you know? And you know we'll have our our going away party in twenty fifty. You know we'll just we'll just party like it like the world. Oh wait, it will be over. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's like hard to make those student loan payments when, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you're like this. I'm, not only am I never gonna see this money, you're never actually gonna see this money either. Yeah, yeah I, I would. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so you're in college, you're getting involved in politics, um, you're, you're listening to, you know, a, a wider array of music, and then you get into education, right? Yep. Okay. Was uh, What was that like? So I, I spent, like, a couple of years, um, I taught in, like, southern Ohio, um, and I think even then I had, like, an idealized understanding of, like, what rural people were like, because um, I, I, I grew up in, like, a semi-rural town, and my family has a lot of ties that to, uh, you know, being Appalachian, and I just want to preface real quick, uh, I say Appalachian, a lot of people will tell me I'm saying that incorrectly, and it's Appalachian. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. And I've mostly heard that from people who don't have any connection <laughs> to, to, you know, to the Smoky Mountains or anything like that. Uh, I always tell people, well, my Appalachian grandpa says Appalachian, so that's what I'm going to say, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, I was like, I don't know. That dude grew up in, like, a, a cabin, uh, you know? <laughs> I was like, it, so I was like, I think he has a little bit more say than I do on it. But anyway, um, yeah, even then, like, you know, I grew up like, a semi-rural area where no one was, like, driving tractors to school. Um, but, there, you know, certainly, like, I was spending a lot of my weekends out, you know, hunting and... Um, uh, going down and we, you know, my, my dad had built a cabin at one point and we spent a lot of time down, uh, in Southern Ohio, you know, around there. And then also like hearing the old stories, you know, from, from my family when, um, when they had just migrated up, um, into Southern Ohio. So like when I go in to teach in Southern Ohio, I'm kind of thinking like, it's going to be kind of similar, but the reality is like people are living again like not as if it's the 1930s so like their 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 existence and struggle is different but the same and you still have this you still have the poverty but now the um introduction of like opioids and things mm -hmm. like that changes the reality quite a bit i mean yeah we had students that we knew had dirt floors but that's not the same thing as um living earlier in that you know it's like they um so but they still had the same like lack of resources it's kind of like a weird straddling of like two existences i think sometimes i can't yeah I kind of feel like I'm making like really broad, overarching generalizations here. It's almost making me uncomfortable to be doing that. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, so I taught for a little bit. Um, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, very, very unsupported when I was a teacher mm -hmm. uh, at the school because I was kind of uh, I was doing a fellowship program through the university, uh, so I was supposed to be only there part of the time. I spent way more than part of the time there teaching, um, with no mentor teacher. Uh, who and because she was retiring, so it was it was kind of miserable, uh, mm -hmm. and I didn't know what I was doing at 22. Yeah, uh, with, with no support, it's kind of like just like go with God, figure it out, you know. Yeah. And so uh, because of that lack of support, you decided it, it wasn't for you. And then where do you end up? Uh, so I, I, I my my partner lives out here. Mm -hmm. uh, went to Rutgers. Mm -hmm. Was from South Jersey, mm -hmm. and she. Um, She's also a teacher. She. It was basically we were in a situation where like whoever got the first full time employment would move either to Ohio or New Jersey. Okay. She got the job. Um, so I moved out here and immediately started looking for uh, teaching positions. Oh, you were still okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was still gonna like that. You know, like teaching becomes a trade. It is sure. like you have a you have a degree in that. You have a license in that. Uh, you can't exactly switch to something else that, um, especially after you've like you. You learn those skills, right? Mm, yeah. Um, but I, was, I thought you had gotten already into labor stuff before you. you no, no, not really. Um, so I'd done like a number. Of, I was a student activist when I was back in Ohio, um, and uh, was involved in like a, we had a student union 
which was calling for like more democratic uh, university, um, and we were fighting under any number of issues. Um, you know, so we we did a lot of like Black Lives Matter stuff. Um, uh, towards the end, it was a lot of immigration things, things like that, and trying to make the university accountable uh, to the larger world outside of it. So that was kind of like I don't know. I, I guess like the things I found interesting about teaching were typically the politics of it. Um, and then through labor, you start to understand that a little bit. Um, if like labor becomes your kind of your bottom line, um, you start to understand working conditions and turns out with teachers, like their working conditions are learning conditions and things mm-hmm. like that. So when I came out here, I was looking for both a teaching position, but I don't have a license in New Jersey. Right. And that would take another, another like couple of steps. Um, but I ended up working as a, I was also applying as a labor organizer at the same time. And ended up working for the Rutgers Faculty Union. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it was kind of like whichever one stuck first was where I was going to go. Okay. You know, I think through that, I've actually probably gained a lot of skills that I can actually transfer back over to teaching, um, hopefully one day. Because um, I still do like working with young people, mm-hmm. um, which I think is something people discount for teachers is like, I actually just prefer working with young people than I do adults a lot of the time. Um because you kind of get to live out the the existence of like they, they can they can reshape their world as well, right? Uh, so when uh, when you moved here, you moved here from like you said a, a semi rural kind of uh, environment, and then you you're in Northeast New Jersey, which is like the most congested part of the most congested state in the country. So um, what was that like adjusting? What have been your what have been your um, I like this about it and I don't like this about it lists. Yeah. Uh, so even, I mean, my hometown was, uh, described as one of the whitest towns in America for a long time. It was, um, so no diversity whatsoever, even to the point now, like moving out to New Jersey, um, like I, I, my coworker will joke that like, I don't know basic Jewish slang. And I was like, I knew one Jewish kid growing up, you know? And, and that was, that was it. Um, if, there was anyone who moved in town you knew, you know, it's like you, you like if when there was like a Latino family moved in, that was a big deal. And even where I went to school for, for my university, it's incredibly undiverse. Right. So when I started moving out, coming out to New Jersey, one of the first things I noticed when I was at Rutgers was like walking down the street and hearing so many different languages very mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, this is what, like, the, a future utopia could look like, you know? <laughs> and, and, I mean, it was, like, to the extent, like, my hometown, I had, like, one Mexican restaurant, one Chinese restaurant, very generic on both accounts. Mm-hmm. And then versus New Jersey is, the, in a lot of ways, is this, like, cornucopia. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've, got some, we've got some dog interference, folks. My apologies. You're going to hear some heavy breathing. <laughs> and bumping into things. You Thank know. you for finally explaining that the heavy breathing's not. Really, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like New Jersey was kind of great because you have all these different immigrant communities moving in at different times, so you can get some of the best uh, Vietnamese food, best Filipino food, uh, Portuguese food. I had no idea. You, know, yeah, you go to yeah, Newark yeah. and Ironbound, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, versus like a Chi-Chi's where I'm from, you know, it's like <laughs> and like Olive Gardens and, and chain restaurants entirely. So. Um, that's one thing actually I really love the diversity of New Jersey mm-hmm. and and the the fact that it, it just you know you get to talk to people from from around the world um, either as first generation immigrants or, or you know they, their family's been here for a long time um, I just feel like you didn't really get that in the Midwest mm-hmm. and not where I'm from at least uh, there wasn't I know like a lot of people if you're like up in 
uh, Wisconsin and, and um, you know, you get these, like, different Im- European immigrants, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always joke that, like, where I'm from, it's just generic white people. There is no sense of, like, a cultural homeland whatsoever, mm-hmm. at least. Now, my town didn't have, like, a German district, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was kind of like, it was just bland, uh, bland kind of existence in that way. So I really do, I do like that about New Jersey. Mm. And then as far as, like, the congested part, this is something I will never, I, I just, I hate the traffic in New Jersey a lot. The driver's a lot more aggressive. Uh, y'all apparently use your car horn for everything. Yeah. Uh, someone doesn't, like, the light turns green, you immediately slam on it. Mm-hmm. Um Everyone's in a hurry, uh, particularly in North Jersey. And I will never get over this. It has changed me as a driver. I'm now more aggressive, and I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, my godmother was visiting, and uh, I was driving, and I, I did something she found aggressive. She's like, oh, we're just more passive drivers, you know? And I was like, yeah, I get it, you know? So that, that was like a big, big shift. I'm not going to lie. The New Jersey Turnpike has forever changed me in ways that I don't like. <laughs> um <laughs> And then the jug handles as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the fact that you all have to go right to turn left seems like a weird uh, Christie conspiracy as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, Been like that since long before I was a kid. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, it makes no sense. And, like, anyone from outside of New Jersey is confused and frustrated that they know they have to go left. And they, there's a weird sign about a jug handle. And if you yeah. miss that, it's like five more miles before you get to turn around. Yeah. Well, you see, since we actually have people here, there's lots of people on the roads coming in the other direction. So just making just a, a normal left, you know, just clog things up and, and have to wait too long. Literally so, the rest of the world's do, figured this out. Do, New Jersey's the only place that has jug handles. <laughs> it makes no sense. Yeah, no, it's like you grew up with it and you just, you just, you're used to it, you know. It, it was also like the, there was one time I was back home and I, I crossed the street, uh, I crossed High Street in Columbus with cars way far down away from me. And I just crossed in the middle of the road, not at an intersection or, or waiting for a light. And someone was honking the entire way as they got you know, nowhere near to hitting me. And I realized again that like New Jersey had changed me because people just walk out in the middle of the street here and like dodge cars. <laughs> and I've, I've come accustomed yeah, to yeah. that, like working in Newark. Cause like I just, I just start walking and I figure it out. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, they're mad at me because they think I've put myself in a unsafe you know, environment. Uh, when there's there's no way this car would have hit me. So just in terms of like people being more in a rush out here mm-hmm. uh, is something I will I I really hate. Um, I enjoy going home and, and and being able to slow down a little bit. At the same time, I now drive like a New Jersey driver, um, to which is way more aggressive than it needs to be. You know. Uh, and the pizza, come on, the pizza. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> the pizza's just fine in the Midwest. Uh, I'll take, oh, that's blasphemy! I'll take Donatos over, you know, the local trattoria any day. I look, man. It, it's flour, tomato sauce, cheese, and like a pepperoni. It's not that complicated of food. <laughs> the East Coast does not have the final word on it. Yeah, yeah. it it's really not that weird, you know. It, you know, I, I'm getting people who say that they're that they're listening, but, like, I have almost no evidence other than, like, the number of times this has been played, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you want me to say some controversial stuff about I was going to say, this, this might be what actually gets fan feedback <laughs> and some is, is uh, you saying that pizza's fine in the Midwest. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing, though. It's, like, the, the, it's not some, like, uh, this 
it's a it's a weird sense of authenticity that New York and New Jersey think they have over over pizza. You know, a domination. It's like not that complicated. You also have a controversial opinion that um, the protectors of 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 pizza. You know, from pineapple are are you know a little. So I show up like with a banjo and I'm like, oh yeah, we talk about folk music. Like let's let's go in on pizza. Yeah, the idea that a Hawaiian pizza with pineapple on it is not delicious is just wrong. It it's some of the best pizza in the world. Um, matter of fact, I'll even go a step further and say Donato's Pizza, a chain that I've only seen in the Midwest, probably in Central Ohio. Uh, their Hawaiian pizza is the best pizza I've ever tasted. And I, I think that a lot of people have this a, a nationalist, um, uh, Eurocentric view of what pizza can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it has to be like as close to Italy as possible. Like, screw yeah. that. Which, even in its most authentic, is not authentic Italian. Is that right? Yeah, I mean it's different. I mean when you when you, when you say pizza and you're in, say in southern Italy, it, it looks and tastes different than like you know your normal your normal pizza. Like a here. slice for a dollar slice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean. I, I think the Hawaiian pizza is the best possible international pizza we've ever had, you know, and it should be celebrated for that. It has pineapple, almonds, ham. It's it's coming. It's it's truly like a, a multicultural pizza. Mm. Um, it's sweet. Uh, it's savory. It's it's great. So pizza must evolve. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I like mean, hip hop. As as like the global domination of capitalism, you know. Hawaiian pizza is truly proof that it was a uh, a unifying um, economic system. You know? <laughs> it brought us these things from around the world. Yes, not under great conditions. No, right. absolutely right. not. And we shouldn't apologize for that. <laughs> no, uh, man, I'm, I'm a. <laughs> I just think I think when people, if it was any other thing outside of food, and they started talking about it the same way about what is good authentic pizza that we would be like oh you're a racist <laughs> if there's any other thing we must keep it pure <laughs> yeah, exactly but it's like pineapple is like that's a stretch too far and suddenly like your most left-wing anti-colonial anti-white supremacist uh person is like suddenly sounds like richard spencer like i don't know what else to tell you like it, you know who else doesn't think pineapple belongs on pizza richard spencer i don't care you agree with him i don't know Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, so no, New Jersey doesn't have the best, or, or New York for them, it doesn't have the best pizza in the world. Uh, pizza's pizza. It's delicious. It's cheap. It is like, in my opinion, the working class food uh, universally. Mm-hmm. If there's truly a universal thing, I think uh, it should be understood as the symbol of solidarity. When there's struggle going on, what do you send to people? Pizza. Pizza. Yeah, that's true. When they were occupying the capital in Wisconsin... You know what they sent from uh, Tahrir Square in Egypt? Pizza. Mm -hmm. When teachers were going to stop giving standardized tests out in uh, Seattle, Seattle. Mm -hmm. you know what teachers from Florida sent? Pizza. Pizza. Mm -hmm. It brings people together. But but did it have pineapple on it? It could have. And that would have made it even better. (laughs) That would have added to the symbolism. I'm an internationalist at heart, you know? I I just think we should, should, you know, we should love it. Right on. So, um, when did you first pick up the banjo? Uh, immediately after moving here. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a folk band that I saw right before I left, um, uh, the Tillers. Um, they're a band out of Cincinnati. And they had this song um, called Tecumseh on the Battlefield. And it came on like Spotify. And 
uh, Tecumseh was a you know a Shawnee war leader who um, tried to unify all the tribes uh, against the Americans, um, leading up until the um, War of eighteen twelve. Mm-hmm. And I love that song. And I, I saw them and um, like right before I left, like within months of or actually like weeks within leaving. And um, one of their first songs on it, just like the, again, like the way the the fifth string pops on the banjo, something like clicked. And really, like I was like, yeah, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go and buy a banjo. So I found one that was kind of cheap uh, online. And prior to that, like I'd played guitar, I played in a couple of, I say a couple of indie bands. It was like a reiteration of the same friend with a, in a basement uh, that started out as like a ska band, eventually turned into like an indie band, and you know, just kind of kept morphing. Um, but I was a horrible guitarist. Um, still, I am a horrible guitarist for that matter. I didn't really like practicing. But I came out here and I, I bought a banjo and I, I started practicing a little bit and um one of the things that's kind of wonderful about it is that like you actually don't have to be great to enjoy folk music and kind of sit around and play and there are really really skilled banjo players obviously in like all forms or in all all genres but there's like no pretension with it i don't think or there's less uh with the exception like bluegrass musicians get very technical um but like the style that I play, there's there's certainly a lot less of it. And there's a lot less sense that you have to be really good. Um, and if if you listen to a lot of the old singers and stuff, it's like they're just kind of hammering away at it, you know. And what comes out is that's the song that they that they wrote that they wanted to play as a story they wanted to tell, you know. So you say the style that you play. What style do you play? Yeah, I, I play mostly uh, what's called claw hammer banjo. So there's probably more than this, but like there there's three like dominant styles i would say and then each one has their own like subset within it um so if there's a lot of banjo listeners or banjo players listening i'm I'm sorry i'm not gonna get into all of that (laughs) but um claw hammer comes out of uh probably one of the earliest ways of playing what became the banjo um it's a a style that has a what's called a bum ditty rhythm where you're kind of plucking the melody note brushing across the strings and then your thumb lands on the fifth string which is a short string and it drones it never it's never fretted is where you get that kind of ring to a banjo. And then there's like a two-finger style, which is also like an old-time style. Um, it can do similar things, but it's a little different. Um, a lot of it's kind of like parlor guitar. And then there's, the, of course, like the classic uh, bluegrass style or scrug style, mm-hmm. which is a three-finger banjo style. Um, and that's where you get like the melody and then like an additional kind of ringing in the middle of it, mm-hmm. which I think is what most people think banjo music sounds sure. like, yeah, yeah. is bluegrass. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually a, a, a much later... Style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the style I play at a claw hammer um, actually comes out of uh, West Africa with the banjo with the banjo or the early iteration of like the banjar, uh, which I, I, to my understanding comes over in like the eighteen hundreds um, through you know the through the enslavement of African people, right? Mm-hmm. So the banjo itself is a, is an African instrument, mm-hmm. and at that time was primarily played by by black people and and enslaved people, um, and only later. Surprise, due to racism, no. uh, it actually like it uh, through like the what's called the minstrel period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it becomes seen as like a negative thing to play the banjo because of because of blackface and because of like the um, the minstrel shows and things like that. Yeah. So there's like this, and I, I don't know all the details, but there's like this time period where it basically becomes like taboo uh, if you're black to play banjo because it, because it's like you're playing into the caricature. Mm-hmm. And white people f- discover, <laughs> hear me out here, 
uh, the banjo and they start playing a lot more. So it's, it's really interesting because a lot of people's perceptions is that the banjo is a white instrument. I've, I've heard a lot of people say that. Um, but it's actually like anything else, it's cultural appropriation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the cool thing is, like, like I said earlier, with like the Carolina Chocolate Drops and a number of other bands like Otis Taylor, um, there's been a revival of like the black banjo tradition. Because um, a lot of blues musicians knew how to play the banjo, they just didn't in public very often. Um, and even today, it's like there's a lot of, I've heard of other uh, black banjo players like refuse to play it for, for white people because they just see it as like a, it, it, the worst of like racist tropes come out with, with white people through that, that at festivals mm. and things like that. Mm. Um, there's a really interesting uh, story I was listening to from one of the, one of the founding members of the Carolina Chocolate Drops where he was des- describing like going around these old time and bluegrass festivals and he was kind of like in a haze and he would just like wake up in another another festival town by you know and he's there to play the music that he loves that is like traditional to you know to him and he still has to deal with like the racist bullshit you know and it, it becomes almost like it wears down on him to where he stopped playing shows entirely and this guy's you know, a genius mm-hmm. um and it's a real shame that like racism kind of beat it out of him again. So he has this really nice scene where he describes like building a fire out in the woods and just kind of playing it for himself, and it becomes this like meditative thing for him, mm. you know. Um, but in, either way, there's still a number of like really great black musicians who have kind of like reclaimed it. Um, kind of was alluding to like Otis Taylor did an album called Reclaiming the Banjo, where he got a, a number of like black blues musicians together to record an album of just black blues musicians playing it. Uh, more recently, Rihanna Giddens has one called um, "Our Native Daughters." Same idea. It's it's uh, women. Uh, it's all women, uh, all black women playing um, original songs. Not a lot of original songs. Maybe there's some traditional ones in there too. Um, but the, she even said in an interview, she's like, "This is probably the first time this has ever happened." You know, um, in 2019. Mm. So, so um, how did we get there? I asked you what kind of styles they were. Oh yeah yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the claw hammer kind of comes out of that. Uh, and then there's like variations of like up picking, which like Pete Seeger, uh, it's often referred to as Seeger style. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing as claw hammer, just with, um, the direction in which you're picking is different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of claw hammer as like the, for me, it's like the punk, uh, punk way of playing a banjo. It's mostly downstrokes. It's very fast or it can be very fast. And it's often, a, if it, you know, a little bit sloppy, or it can be. Whereas, like, uh, bluegrass style is more like the heavy metal, mm. uh, really fast riffs, and they want to add as many notes as possible. Mm. Um, and or, or, like, a jazz in the way of, like, let's just keep adding, you know, more and more to it, make it more complex. I saw someone compare it to jazz recently. I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Hmm. Um, whereas I, I think of, like, claw hammers, like, it's a little bit sloppy, you know? And mm-hmm. it's, like, it's more, for me, anyways, it's, like, it's, it's for me, you know? It's, like, I... I can play this, get as proficient as I want to, and, and still enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I have friends play it, I, I you know I'll show them like one or two things. And I'm like, you can play, you, know, you can slide down here on this fret here, and just play that over and over for the rest of your life and be happy. You know, and it's kind of true. Yeah. So uh, the the banjo you brought with you today, um, you described as a mountain banjo. What what did you mean by that? Uh yeah. So this is a. Uh, I'll just I'll go ahead and describe it for a second. This is an all wood banjo uh, with no frets on it. Even the the tuning pegs are just uh, wood tuning pegs, and then it's got a um, it's got a high drum in the center. These these banjos were like the ones that people would have been making at home. Mm. Uh, even this one here is I bought it off a guy in North Carolina, uh, John Peterson. Um, you know these are 
really they're kind of rough cut and you, know, you can buy ones that are a little bit you know a little bit um nicer more polished but i i kind of like the fact that it's still kind of um more common to what you would have seen like somebody building with like home tools you know mm -hmm. um so it, it's a lot different than a, a banjo that you might see with a bluegrass um a bluegrass band right uh, it doesn't have the giant resonator on the back uh so it's not as loud as a as a bluegrass banjo um which i honestly i just find like to be obnoxious um and again, I also think that's what people think of when they think of a banjo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this one, it's fretless, uh, to which I, my understanding is that, like, even when banjos first started being manufactured and being sent, um, like, into the Carolinas and stuff, they would take them and, and file down a lot of the frets because they didn't know what they were. Um, it just wasn't as common. Mm. Um, so it's more like a, you know, and on the flip side for me, it was like when I first started playing, uh, I was confused when I saw a violin for the first time because I didn't understand why it didn't have frets. Hmm. Right? We think of like guitar and ukulele and mandolin and everything else all have frets. And uh, So this is a, a fretless mountain banjo. It's got a little bit smoother of a uh, tone to it, a little bit lighter, which I kind of like for that reason. I can play it in the park and not be like obnoxious to everyone around me. But yeah, traditionally, the even the hides were typically, a lot of times it was groundhog, a groundhog hide or a cat that might be in the area things like that is like really common um early banjo hides um i think this one's just a goat goat hide here are there any vegan banjos oh yeah uh, yeah i mean <laughs> yeah you know i'm sure like there's a shop in california that's purely a, a <laughs> vegan banjo shop no i mean yeah you can use like a, a synthetic head I, my my regular like my regular banjo that's a little more standard um it, it's a synthetic head in the same way that like any drum head today is you know probably made by Remo with like a synthetic head. So uh, what's the difference then between this the standard banjo you have at home and this one? Less manufactured parts in terms of the the construction. So there um, there's no like tension ring with uh, hooks on it and um, things like that. Um, no frets um, and the the tuners aren't geared tuners. Uh, which I, with this you could add it, but it I I kind of like the the struggle of swelling keys and as <laughs> as the humidity rises they get easier or harder to tune um so as a result it's kind of it it doesn't hold the tune as well mm. um so it's a little bit I, I tune it deeper for that reason so it's so it so the strings actually hold and it's going to create like a different kind of sound to it entirely. Yeah. why don't you play a little something for us all right we're going to try we're going to try to do multiple takes here i'm gonna let you know right now okay so this is a relative tuning to an open g um, which is another thing I kind of like about the banjo is a lot of it is an open tuning. So it, it's almost hard to hit wrong notes sometimes. Uh, it makes it a little bit easier to play. I always tell people when I first start though, if I have a friend who wants to play, I'll go like, well, here's what you gotta do. Just hit this. That's that bum ditty kind of sound to it. You get the melody note, the bum, bum ditty, bum ditty kind of. You kind of get that like nice little bounce. I always tell them like, well, just uh, put it on the on the second string and or the third string and go from the second fret down to the fourth. And if you just play that over and over, it automatically just sounds like a song. You know, you just... automatically. You know, that's kind of what I love about it. Is it's like it's a for me, it's like a lazy instrument. And you can do that all day. And you kind of get like a nice automatic kind of feel to it. Uh, 
And it really is almost like an instrument made for playing on the front porch and just chilling. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, it almost for me it, sometimes like you get get to playing something, it almost becomes like a, a meditative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like a lot of meditative uh, instruments or tools, it's only meditative for the person focusing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure. Yeah, you know, my friends don't want to hear Cripple Creek over and over again, but like I can sit there and play it all day. You know? something like that right yeah and i can sit there I, i'll play that for hours and not notice time go by mm. i don't think my family members feel the same way <laughs> does, does your dog like the banjo he was terrified of it when i first got mm. it uh he's terrified of a lot of things yeah. and i remember the like he was like the one time i just i picked it up and kind of strummed something and his tail went between his legs and he just ran away from me mm. uh he was not a fan you know That was great. That's so pretty. Yeah, that's it was. You, you, you know, you call it a, a you know a lazy accessible instrument, and I'm watching. And I'm like, I can't do that. Yeah, I mean, sure, sure. I mean, the the, the claw hammer motion itself is, is like really counterintuitive because anything you play, you know, if you play guitar, even if you like learn a finger picking style, uh, everything's kind of like an up upward motion that feels very natural. Versus the claw hammer, it's like you're gonna hit it with the back of your nail, right? That's gonna be your basis of of of, of uh, playing the melody, is with the back of your nail. And that's where you get the the hammer part of it. And the claw is that it's like your your thumb and your index finger kind of do make like a little, uh, almost like a claw shape with your hand, right? Um, but I think just in terms of like the once you kind of get that basic thing down, it just becomes a once that becomes natural, just plucking around on it becomes very easy, you know? Yeah. And then, I mean, there's there's any number of ways to play it from there. Uh, I've been learning this, like, um, Doc Bog style. Have you ever listened to Doc Bogs? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so he's like a, a guy out of West Virginia um, who... Stopped playing for a long time, and then uh, Alan Lomax went back, and I, I think it was Alan Lomax anyways, went back and uh, uh, knew that, this, that he was around. He plays an entirely different style based on, like, a parlor guitar uh, finger style. So it would be like... So you kind of get outside of that, like, bum-ditty rhythm itself, right? And you kind of pluck out different notes. It's kind of what I, I like. There's a there's a couple different ways of doing it. Um, there's a lot of great musicians who just kind of strum it like a guitar. Um, you know, I'm not to be a purist about it. But like I, I do find it's like that. It's like really just not playing it how I, I feel like it should. I think I like the being able to pick things out and have it's like putting pineapple on it or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like putting pineapple <laughs> on it. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. And then you get into like the bluegrass style. Is just like. 
let's let's hit as many notes as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they they have a lot of filler notes, and um, that's when you get that constant kind of ringing sound. I just I can't do it. Yeah. No, I, I I like it. I like it a lot. I like what what you're talking about, and and I, I you know I like me some Earl Scruggs too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can do some of it. Um, there's like there's a really good cover band that will do like um, they have an, a Modest Mouse album where it's all Modest Mouse yes, songs. Yeah, yeah, I've, uh, yeah. They did a Fish one too. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and that's kind of a, a they're. I mean, they're so talented. Um, and but I think part of that's like I enjoy the lyrics and I know the original song, so um, they're singing about the universe and stuff. It's it's kind of different. It's a different take on it, mm-hmm. um, and I'll enjoy it for that. Or like the Punch Brothers are doing really weird orchestral orca- orchestral. That's the word orchestral <laughs> um, type work with their with their with their songs that are just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, but I got to be in the mood for it. I yeah, got to be like, okay, yeah. I want to sit down and like really feel every aspect of this right? i saw them play at a festival and i downloaded a couple of their songs and it's like you know i, I can get down with it but like eh, it's not really like i mean not, even not my favorite you know. even when they first started um they they had to uh they kept getting advertised as bluegrass fusion which i don't think they even like that mm, um yeah. because people showed up thinking that they were just going to hear the standard uh bluegrass songs you know mm-hmm. like blue moon in kentucky and stuff like that and yeah, they yeah. they play those but then they had these like sweeping movements within their within mm. their uh within their songs and people were so confused and didn't like it um but they're each each one of them is like it's a super group you know um so so people would get up and leave because they weren't hearing the bluegrass standards and then now they've kind of created like a niche in and of themselves as like this progressive band that has actually changed the landscape. Mm. Um, they'll do like uh, Radiohead covers and not the standard Radiohead covers, you know, like, um, was it like Pack Like Sardines? They'll do that song, which has like a weird breakdown in the middle of it. Then um, they'll do um, Reptilia by um, The Strokes and stuff like that. So, okay. I don't know. I, I, I do like that they're doing some weird stuff and I'll listen to it on occasion, but I, I tend to stay away from bluegrass. Mm. Um it, you know, they're, they're, uh, most bands are super talented. I just I can't get down with it. Right, too much going on. So then we uh, we were talking a little bit at the beginning about folk and it evolving and and things like that. Where do you where do you see folk music in twenty nineteen? Is it too nostalgic and retro? Is it you know is that a tough question to answer? Or? I mean I'm a nobody to answer that question. Well, um, you're a fan. I mean I, I I like what I like and. Like I said, I think there's people doing some really interesting music and trying to push it. I just get really... Like, I've seen bands change, too, where they, they start out playing, like, uh, the same the same standards over and over, or they, or they write new songs um, as if... You know, kind of, like, taking on a character of, like, the the traveling banjo player or, the, you know, the traveling musician, the Woody Guthrie, right? They're, yeah. like, they're just trying to be Woody Guthrie. Mm-hmm. Uh and they they talk about the same things as if like we don't have modern problems or or modern issues right and um so i i just find that stuff really boring and i just think that a genre dies or any, anything really dies when it becomes uh um so rigid right. right uh if it's not willing to like evolve and take on new forms again i'm not really a person to be able to have that high of an opinion of it but that's kind of that's where i'm at is like i want to hear you know what are the pressing issues of today? Uh, what ways can you keep a traditional 
kind of feel to it, but then but not get locked into that entirely. So I, I would like to hear more modern labor songs, and they they do exist too. At the same time, it's not like entirely like if I haven't heard it, it doesn't exist. I I, I find new bands all the time or yeah. something that will do that. One of the bands I really like right now is Anna and Elizabeth, and they their first couple of albums are pretty straight, standard, traditional type old time albums. Their last one, they went in these. I, I always think it's like it's like Sonic Youth. You know, with with banjos, they go into these like a lot more noise, and um, I don't even know how to describe it. But it, it, what they're doing, it's just, it's just um, so different than a folk standard. And it was published with uh, Smithsonian Folkways, mm. um, and I, I, I just love the album because it just kind of flips it on its head. Um, a lot, the, I think most of their songs are coming out of like the old archives um, that they had to go and look for, but they still did it in a very kind of different experimental way. Um, but it wasn't also like corny at the same time. I don't know. It's just, it's a really lovely kind of in between. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Is like I just I really want I like the modern stuff. I I, I want to. I just don't want to. Uh, I sound like I'm Woody Guthrie, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm working on things that um, I got a song in the works right now though. Where and to flip it, go backwards though, is I'm working on a song right now that takes one of my family stories. Um, that is from when my great-grandpa was working on the WPA. Um, and I'm trying to take those so- those stories and turn them into songs. Oh, you know? cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a goal of mine coming out of it was like... So my, my dad went around and recorded his uh, grandparents and my grandpa telling like the old stories from when they were um, growing up. And then he wrote, wrote them all down so everybody could have a copy, you know, so that as they, like die the stories don't leave right um so one of the goals i have is to actually take those some of those same stories and and put them to new uh, a new use right and that's gonna sound very much like a traditional folk song and i know that right but it um for me it's a way of kind of keeping it alive for a little bit more you know in a different format i look forward to hearing that yeah maybe when we're done recording I'll play it for you. <laughs> Sounds good. So we talked a little bit at the beginning, too, about uh, hip-hop evolving. Um, tell me about uh, your outro music. Uh, is, it, is it pronounced Saba? Is that? Yeah. Okay. And it's Prom slash King? Yeah. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that. That one was hard for me to listen to. Really? The Earl Sweatshirt one, it was okay, you know, but like the... The Saba one, I was just like, I, I had that old person reaction, like, uh, really? Uh, this isn't music, uh. You're kidding. No. <laughs> I just, like, oh, man. couldn't do it. That album came out last year, and uh, this, you, are you familiar with Hannibal Burris, the comedian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He posted it on, like, his Instagram, and he said something about, like, it's, like, like a great form of storytelling, and I, I listened to that, that song and the rest of the album, and I just, uh... Again, I, I just that whole album is so good. Um, it comes after his uh, cousin was um, was murdered, and it's kind of like him grieving this whole album, and, and particularly that song um, and the storytelling of it of like growing up with his cousin, and then uh, when they went to prom and, and the aftermath of it. I just think it's it's such a great story. That song is so good in terms of like you. Um, for me, a good song, like you start to visualize the existence of it, you know, um, and you can see the story playing out. 
Um, and I, I just think he's so clever in his writing. That's it. I mean, for me, it's like, is it a good story mm-hmm. is what matters, partially, right? And it, it's like, I think Saba is just it's absolutely wonderful at it. Um, so, I, again, I don't have, like, a grand analysis of this. Like, oh, I, that's cool. I always feel like I'm not smart enough to understand hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned is I'm not smart enough to understand hip-hop. <laughs> um, so I won't even pretend to, like, to really go into it. But yeah. I, I just think... Um, Again, what he was able to do on that song, it, it, it just tells such a heartbreaking story uh, of uh, growing up with someone and have them murdered, and, and you get a sense of like what his cousin really meant to him, hmm. um, and you get a sense of like the grieving process through it. You, you, you almost feel like you know him at the same time. So I, just, I honestly, I, I figured with this, like, okay, I'm going to show up and talk about banjos and folk music. Good folk music to me is storytelling, hmm. you know? And I think that both of those songs are... are great stories um kind of heartbreaking too but uh kind of a unique take on it i'll have to go back and, and give it a second chance and see if i can pick up and pay more attention to the lyrics it wasn't it was like just... i was asking you to listen to like uh trippy red or something like that i don't i, I didn't yeah i know it was, it was, these guys this guy's not like a soundcloud rapper is what i'm trying to say okay like, all right oh yeah, like yeah. He, he he's right up there with like uh um Kendrick Lamar. Oh, really? Or, or Chance the Rapper. Okay, because those two, I can, I, I dig some of their stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I got nothing for you, man. Okay, this that's is that, cool. No, we're not Earl, trying to Earl is definitely weirder than, than Saba, especially Earl's later stuff. But, like, uh, kind of shocked, man. Well, you kinda know. Kind of shocked. I'm getting old and cranky. And, you know, it's just, you You're know. not allowed to get old and cranky. Like, <laughs> not over music. You gotta... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to keep an open mind to, to music now, especially... Um, I think coming out of like, I always think it's like that that punk like uh, thing of like, uh, all all new music sucks or it was better at X date and it's like, mm-hmm. if you can like I don't know I, I I like to appreciate the evolution of music you know, and, and think like okay this is how it's changing and how does the larger is someone broke down how, a lot of like mumble rap is also kind of seated in the the failures of like, the Obama administration like it shapes the way you kind of understand your existence and, hmm. and you start to, uh, the larger conditions kind of even shape the, 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 um, nihilism of the music itself. Right. Oh. And you start See, to like, that's the kind of things I need to like read and hear about to be able to appreciate it more. Yeah. I mean, it, I, music I, need like, I need like a companion, to, like a, a guide. To I, go with I do too. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I think the, yeah, we have to like actually consider like what are the larger social conditions for yeah. it? I, I listen to a podcast that breaks down songs and what the artist was going through in order to understand it. Uh, again, like I said, like I've always felt like I wasn't smart enough to understand hip hop, and I, I have proof that I'm not smart enough. And I, I do think that like uh, folk music can learn a lot uh, from hip hop in terms of like what they're actually doing lyrically, um, and almost like in a poetic way, and then also like what they're doing in terms of the to create the music itself, in terms of sampling and also like recreating new things and, and things like that. Um, Versus like thinking of things as like, well, this is when it was traditional and good, and that's it, it dies there, mm. you know. And like, why don't people like this? Because well, it doesn't speak to anything of their interests. Right. Know? Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to leave it on. My my quest to embrace the pineapple pizza of hip hop, and 
uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I went to the barbershop the first thing the next morning. Then I got up with legit. We supposed to do some recording. Ten minutes into the session, I got a call from a number that I don't got say. But I answer anyway. She says, hello, Malik. Have you or Squeak talked to my son today? He was just on the train. We got in the car, but we didn't know where to drive to. Fuck it, wherever you are, my nigga, we'll come and find you. Okay, folks, hidden bonus track. Uh, we're going to get going a little bit with uh, one of the songs Jacob was talking about that he's uh, put together based on uh, some family stories. You want to tell us the story? or? Uh, yeah, so my family ended up in southern Ohio and Jackson, Ohio, uh, because of the Work Progress Administration. Uh, it was the first time anyone had like stable work, and they, they migrated up to work on that uh, to create the Jackson Lake. And one of the, the things that with uh appalachian like folk stories a lot of them come from other places like the like almost like the spirit or the essence of the story will come from somewhere else and um one night my great grandpa was walking home uh from from work and he like stopped and got drunk on the way and um he he was, as he was walking up the hill he the, the story is that he heard someone say put down your light and he looks around, he didn't see anything, and he, and he hears it again, like, put down your light. And he looks up, and there's this creature standing in front of him with long, uh, hairy arms and no head. And um, so he's trying, to, he's trying to bargain with this, what he calls the devil. And, the, and it tells him to put down a light, and uh, he's like, well, you know, my wife is pregnant, i got to go home, like, I, I can't be here. And uh, the devil picks him up. And like, kind of like, drags him around the the hill, you know, the hills and the hollers through there, and they heard him like yelling from home, but they didn't know what was going on. So anyway, that you know, when he finally gets home the next day, he's kind of like bruised and bloody and kind of torn up, and he tells his wife uh, what had happened, and they go up and they find his lunch pail up there, and that was kind of like proof that something had happened. You know, the devil had shown up. And um, years later, it's like my dad looks it up. As we look it up, it, it turns out that this description fits like what's described as a puka back in Ireland, uh, which I've always found really interesting. It's like they have no, like my great grandpa didn't know what a puka was or have any like, you know, maybe like tracking that history. But the story itself kind of lives on uh, through, through, you know, storytelling and songs. And then, of course, I've heard this from my grandpa and I've kind of taken it as like, how can I kind of redo it, right? Uh, so some I'm working on, and um, that kind of gives you the basis for the lyrics itself, right? Ebbs of devil on the hill, don't look now, he's up there still, oh, he's up there still. Coming home with the WPA, drunk as he walked and lost his way. Mm -hmm. There he stood with no head, but Eb still heard every word he said. Mm -hmm. Boy, you better put down your light, you're gonna learn wrong from right. Get home, my wife is pregnant and she's all alone. Oh, 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 oh. 
Devil swept him off the ground, carried his body round and round. Oh. Eb, you better change your way, I'll be back on Judgment Day. Oh. Eb saw the devil on the hill, don't look now, he's up there still. Oh. He's up there still. working on it. You know what the great thing about folk music is? What's that? You don't have to be a great singer to do it. Yeah. You just gotta do it. Yeah. So I like it. Does it, does it have a title? Ebb Saw the Devil. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this has been uh, Jacob Tiny Desk Concert because uh, <laughs> we are at a Tiny <laughs> Desk. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, thanks. I, I'm, I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you decided to record that. Yeah, nice. Thanks for letting me do it, man. Okay, so that was my interview with Jacob, complete with extra banjo. Hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing. You know, uh, not that this podcast is really on anybody's radar, but I don't have the licensing for the music I use, obviously. So I'm trying to get folks to write some some new music for the show. I have somebody who's probably going to work on the intro for me, but if you were somebody you know would like to work on the outro music, get in touch with me. Go to bryantalksofhumans.net and click on contact and you'll find my email and my social media. Also, use that same contact information if you or somebody you know has an interesting story and would be a good guest for the podcast. When you go to bryantalksofhumans.net and click on contact, you'll see a button where you can donate to the cause through Patreon. Let's try to keep this people's podcast going. Okay. Thanks for listening. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the